0: Radio, y'all on the air. Yo, what's up? This is Aaron calling from Yonkers.
1: Yonkers! Y.O. yo what's, up? what's up, Y.O.? Yo, tell him um, Peter O.A. to still let Dominic run his show. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know Darmic, they want your show back, Darmic. Yeah, People and, have so Darmic is
1: cool, but yo, he's trying to be like a fool critic. The meatballs and all that. <laughs> I mean, I try and, like trying to get a job with the New York Times and Time Magazine. Tell him. That's it. National Geographic.
0: He just used you guys as a
1: springboard. He ain't really no
0: hip-hop fan. It's all good, so good work. No doubt. Thanks for the call. Yeah, forget about Navani leaving. Exactly. If you want to call up and talk about Dominic's Darmic show and what's wrong with it, give us a call. <laughs> 212-998-1818 is the number.
1: What up, what up, what up? You yep. tuned in. Now, where were we? WNYU 89.1 FM on your FM dial. You may also be listening to us on WNYU.org or... The TuneIn Radio app, which is my preferred method to listen to online radio.
2: Mm -hmm. Do you own that app, Darmik? Yes, I do. I do. Of course I do. Being around you enough, you just like, download it, download it, download it, and I finally did.
1: I know. I've suggested a bunch of apps to listen to podcasts and radio shows because I figured the more work you put in and the more radio you listen to, we may actually get really good up here one day. Hopefully, one and the, day. And the majors will call us and they'll, they'll take us out of this little studio and <laughs> put us on mainstream radio. How you feeling, dude? I'm good. How are you feeling, Peter? Ah, I'm feeling like a million bucks. It's good to hear. It's very good to hear, man. It's yeah, gra- greatest hear. day of my life. <laughs> Definitely, you know. Um, what do We We heard a conversation between you and, and Common.
2: Yes, yes, your old friend. Um, Common called... The station uh, last week, and I got to talk to him. It was a brief conversation. You pretty much heard all of it. And we talked about the new album. Um, you know, the, the last song on there, Rewind That, deals with Jay Dilla, the late Jay Dilla. And then um, he promised that the the album with Nas will happen, so we'll see about that.
1: And, and most importantly... He talked about Peter. You started off the interview, and the Great Common yes. spoke about me. Yes, and, and, and you and
2: can, why don't you talk about your relationship with him?
1: Well, to to make it quick, in the the mid-90s, when Common was kind of on the come-up, he would come to New York and perform at a venue called Tramps over on 21st Street, where I was the presenter and the promoter. And that's it. And Common had a really diverse show. And there was one night where it was Common, and he had uh, Savion Glover, the tap dancer, tapping along while Common rapped to the taps and, and a backing band. And what's most important is that he did two shows in one night. One show had sold out. The late show had had undersold. And the room was less than half empty. Mm. And who comes walking in the door? And if you just listen to the interview, Jay-Z came walking in, no bodyguard, no Beyonce on his arm. and, And he stood and watched Common's entire show. And I tell this story all the time and no one believes me. And thanks to you, Dharmic, for asking Common about it. Now it's it's in the history books Because Common did confirm that Jay-Z watched his show Yes So thank you, Dharmic.
2: Yeah, not only that, it was 1996 So this isn't like Jay-Z the mega millionaire This is Jay-Z I'm trying to put out my first album, Jay-Z
1: This is Jay-Z I was probably wearing a a leather jacket and a do-rag, Jay-Z. Yeah,
2: so that's a very different time, and it's amazing to look at the growth, not only of Jay-Z, but of Common, to come from from 96 to now, you know, talking about acting and finishing acting and then getting into the album. So, you know, shouts out to him, and, and his new album is called Nobody's Smiling, and it's one of my favorite albums
1: of the year, personally. You could go out and stream it. If you're interested, yep. If you're interested. I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Well, what what's going on tonight, Dharmik? We we do have a guest in the studio.
2: Yes, a very, very special guest.
1: Um, I'm going to let you set this up. But okay. before you do, I want to mention that our esteemed guest has never made an appearance on an underground rap show. And I think he's a little nervous. Actually, not. <laughs> he's been talking way too much. He's already been but taught. But I've come to expect that from him. I, I want you to set it up. And I want our guest to put his headphones on so he can get the oh, full okay. effect. Yes. It may yes. mess up his hair, but...
2: <laughs> well, our our guest, you know, despite having never been on, on maybe rap radio, is really one of the uh, early forefathers, in a way, of, of the rap... Music movement, Um, But he was also very instrumental in music in general at a time when none of the things that we use to listen to music even existed. You know, there was no iPods, iPhones, no internet. And, you know, some of the things he was able to do back then without all this technology seems kind of unfathomable. And I think the most amazing thing to me personally is, you know, the transition he has made from being in the music world to being really... In a way, a philosopher, a modern-day philosopher, and and he's written, you know, three or four books and speaks at length, not just on on radio, but but uh, you know across a variety of platforms. And um, really, in in the last hour, I've been speaking to him, and and he's kind of blown my mind in in several different ways. Uh, quite an intelligent man, and and somebody I I have gained a lot of respect for just in our brief conversation so far. And so with that, I introduce to now the
1: the Now Where Were We audience, Howard Bloom.
3: Um, Darmic, it's good to see you. Peter, it's wonderful to see you.
1: This is, a, this is an amazing thing. I want to set this up. Howard and I hang out at the same coffee shop. I'm not going to mention the name of the coffee shop because I don't want half the audience to try to solicit their demo tape to me or to <laughs> Howard because when Howard's at the coffee shop, his head is buried in his laptop, and he's probably doing something that you and I, Darmic, and most of our audience can't do. Yes. And and that's
3: the truth. Well, I've written three of my six books sitting at that coffee shop. And I've put Buzz Aldrin together with the uh, uh, the 11th president of India, who's a superstar in Asia. He's one Kalam. of Kalam. Yeah, Dr. APJ Kalam, mm-hmm. the only trusted politician in all of India. Fair and, enough, And yes. Kalam is kind enough to think that I'm a visionary. He read one of my books, The Genius of the Beast, a radical revision of capitalism. He's not supposed to communicate with me directly. That's against protocol. He sat down at 10 o'clock at night after reading the book for six hours and whacked out an email email saying this book is visionary and going on and on and on and on and on about it so you can do amazing things with the technologies you're talking about you can reach out across the world and knit things together in ways that defy belief
2: yeah definitely definitely but it's and i think that makes that speaks to your role in in the music industry at that time and some of the things you were able to do as i said before that just you know we can't we can't even imagine why why don't we go in that direction maybe, and and tell us a little bit of of your start in the music industry and, and your own company that you had.
3: Well, I was a science nerd from the age of 10. At the age of 10, I got very heavily involved in cosmology and theoretical physics. At the age of 12, I built my first Boolean algebra machine. I co-designed a computer that won some science fairs. I sat down with the head of the graduate physics department at the University of Buffalo, and we debated steady state versus Big Bang Theory of the Universe. And you wouldn't think that any of this has to do with music at all, because science was it. It was my life, my bones, my marrow, my flesh. And uh, at the age of 13, I realized that I was an atheist, and my parents were trying to drag me, literally drag me to high holiday services. I was clutching the frame of the car, and they they were nearly shredding my socks, trying to get me out of it. And uh, to go to high holiday services. And I realized, hey, you know, if there are no gods up in the sky and there are no gods down below us in the earth, there sure as hell are gods in my parents. And by then, I'd been reading two books a day since I was 10. I'd read a lot of anthropology. Every tribe I'd ever read of had some sort of supernatural force. So my job became to find the gods inside of us. Um, you know, science, the first two rules of science, the truth at any price, including the price of your life. And rule number two, look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. I, I realized my job was to find the things behind our nose, the mass passions that make history. And so that there is almost nothing in life that captures that raw spirit, that absolutely um, a spirit you cannot put into words. Um, music is this incredible mystery of the human soul. And so eventually, a long time later, I skipped my three grad school or four grad school fellowships in uh, neurobiology, and I went into pop culture, which I knew nothing, nothing, nothing about, and I founded the biggest PR firm in the music industry and worked with Michael Jackson Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Medler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss Queen, Run DMC, Paul Simon, Billy Joel, um, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, and rap. run, <laughs> And Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and run DMC. And, and when we sit down and we start talking about rap music, I become very anxious to tell you the story, at least from my point of view, of how it all began. Because... Um, I used correlational studies and all kinds of techniques out of my science background to try to understand the music industry. So by 1981, five five years after I'd started my company, I guess I was pretty well known. And one day, a person asked for an appointment and came into my office at 55th Street and Lexington Avenue, having been brought in and her chauffeured Rolls-Royce. Now, she had gotten her start in the 1960s. In the 1960s, if you were black you were not allowed behind a control board. You were not allowed in the control room of a studio. And if you were a woman, you were not allowed behind the control board. Well, this person who came to visit me, she had written a song. She had put together a studio production. She had produced it herself, and she'd put it out herself. She basically gave a great big finger, middle finger, to all the no's in in the music industry. That song was Love Is Strange and it was by Mickey and Sylvia. It was a hit and if you ever hear it it's gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. And her name was Sylvia Robinson. Mm. So Sylvia Robinson because she was in, she she broke all the rules. And she started her own record company. It was headquartered in a little dry-cleaning establishment in New Jersey, a self-standing self one-story building that she turned into a studio and offices. So that's the person who was coming to meet me. And by the time she came to meet me, I knew of her because she'd had a couple of albums. She was a middle-aged woman by then. When you're selling your music, you're not just selling your music if you're a woman. You're selling your hip-waist ratio, the t- your tiny little waist. Look at people like Beyoncé. And she no longer had a tiny little waist. She was middle aged. With, she was the only person I've ever seen in my life who, without sexual symbols, you know, without the sexual come ons that for your face produces and your hourglass shape produces, went platinum and double platinum. It was amazing. So Sylvia came into my office and said, "Look, I was cruising in the South Bronx in my car." And I heard this music. They blocked off the streets. They put um, turntables and giant speakers down at the end of the street. And they were playing this form of music I'd never heard before. And I loved it. So I went back to my little studio in New Jersey. And I got my studio group together. And I wrote a song in that style. And we put it out. It was called Rapper's Delight. Um, it was put out on the Sugar Hill label because the Sugar Hill part of Harlem is where Sylvia was born and raised. Um, and it was a hit, you know. She mm-hmm. did, it was one of the very first 12-inch singles, so the DJs could m- fiddle with it. And it was a really, I mean, it was a historical hit. Yeah. So she had gone back to the South Bronx to find a group that really represented what she had captured in her own ability to write a piece of music. And she found Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, and they were terrific. And Flash, you got to remember, Flash had single-handedly invented the use of two turntables and manipulating them by hand something that we take for granted now but that was new no we'd ever seen that before when Flash was into it. So I was working my tail off on this new form of music. One of the things that I had discovered, again, being a science person, landing like a Martian on this strange planet of popular music, Mm -hmm. one of the things I discovered is that people use music as an emblem of their subculture. It's it's a way in which a subculture discovers itself. You have a Mm -hmm. bunch of kids, they're coming of age, they're 11, 12, 13, and 14 years old, they feel utterly alone, they feel utterly whacked out, they feel as if they are insane, and there's nobody else like them. They feel that everybody else is normal, only they are insane. Mm -hmm. And so they try their best to pretend to be normal, thus giving other people the impression that everybody's normal, which is not quite true. And then an artist comes along or a form of music comes along, and it makes them realize they are not alone. They are not abnormal. There is a new normal. And that new normal is reflected in that music. Mm. So music gives a subculture a bunch of disparate people, you know, who, who feel totally disconnected from everything, pulls them together into a subculture and gives that subculture an identity, and it gives them a right to exist, which and it gives them a way of struggling for the right to exist. So I felt that rap represented a subculture that was trying to come together and had a valid reason to have a voice of its own.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And when you give me a challenge like that, I'll work my I'll work my tail off on it. Um, I'll work night and day, and I'll work over threats, and I'll work over dangers. So one of, the, one of the people in the music industry who was at that point a major corporate guy came to me, and he said, look, Bloom, you've worked extremely hard to establish your reputation, and you now have one. And he um, Look at this stuff, this music you're representing. It's not music. Um, now I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on the air, but he said it's shit. You know it's <laughs> shit. Mm-hmm. No, I I I know it's dog poop. Mm-hmm. Okay, and when and and you also know it's going to disappear in six months. Wow. And when it disappears, it's going to explode, and it's going to leave dog poop all over your face. So. Well, when somebody tells you something like that, Dermick, and Peter, you know, periodically, uh, uh, somebody telling you that tells you on the deepest of all possible levels, you are doing something important, and you better keep doing it. It's a crusade, and it's a crusade worth doing. So we stuck with it. And uh, as you noticed, um, rap music disappeared in 1981, approximately six months after that conversation occurred, right? (laughs) Shows you the wisdom of record company executives, because that's what he was at the time. And then Russell Simmons came along. Now, Russell had actually been involved with rap before I had. Mm -hmm. Um, He'd been starting with a couple of acts, but but nobody nobody thought it was a form of music. Right. And he hadn't broken through. So Russell brought me Run DMC. And with Run-DMC, we, took, we had given Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five validity, and we had established the right to exist for rap music, but it was still a marginal thing. Right. And now, with Russell, it mainstreamed, because Russell had all these crazy ideas. Russell had all these merchandising ideas. Now, if you used those merchandising ideas in white music, you would have killed the music. Mm. Because white arts are icons, and people use them as trellises, and they grow on them and if you take the heart out the soul out of that music by by associating with a bunch of corporations you're not saying this music is my music and says i have a right to exist you're saying this music is their music and their way of imposing themselves upon me which mm-hmm. you can't do but if you if you do the same thing in the black community if you set up a bunch of commercial sponsorships and stuff like that it has a different meaning because the black community's been kept outside of the mainstream, of economic life. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a consequence, when something comes along, when a rap act comes along and just drips in gold chains and does excessive, what we call excessive materialism, he's saying, I have broken through to an area of life where black people have never been allowed. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Um, So Russell's ideas of marketing things, of putting commercial tie-ins of all kinds together, of taking, I mean, he had an act that was so good... Um, it was Jazzy Jeff, um, mm-hmm. DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Yeah, I, So I ached to work with that act, but Russell didn't want any one of his minions, you know, his teammates, to be working on more than one of his acts. He wanted to keep us competing with each other. Uh-huh. And so when he came up with the idea of taking Will Smith and putting him into films, it seemed absurd. <laughs> Except I could hear it, you know, there was a new kind of black culture coming to life. Up until then, black culture still bore the stamp of having come up from the Deep South and being relatively new in the North. Mm-hmm. And as a result, anybody black spoke with a Georgia accent um, and, and w- it was set off. And, no, and, and even if you didn't speak with a Georgia accent, you couldn't pronounce the word ask. It was pronounced Axe, and there was nothing you could do about it. You were stuck with that. Mm-hmm. Well, DJ Jazzy Jeff was, uh, or, or Will Smith was quite obviously a whole different breed of person. He was what those of us who had been fighting for civil rights ever since the 1960s had helped make possible. Mm-hmm. He was middle class, articulate, um, smart, um, and I wanted to work with him. I wanted to work with that element of the black culture too, coming out of the closet. But Russell's brilliance was to take Will Smith. It means to take him into the films, and look how Will Smith has done Yes. in films since then. And then in 1988, Jive Records had a new act, and, well, I was the rap publicist who had helped establish rap, right? Mm-hmm. So if you were going to establish a rap act, you came to me, mm. and, and I believed in this stuff. And they came to me with an act out of Philadelphia whose lyrics were all about killing people. Mm-hmm. And, but they were about killing people, not as social commentary, not saying this is bad. But the inherent stance was, this is good, and I couldn't tolerate that. And I said i will only work with this act if you let me sit down with him and get him to change his lyrics, which I never did because you know you made th- the act has to be, cl- he has to be true to his or her own identity. That's crucial mm-hmm. in music. But in this case, I didn't want anybody recommending killing people, mm. and so I didn't end up working with that act. But that was the beginning of gangster rap. Who, who was that? I don't remember the name of the act, but may there was, have been schoolie schoolie d. Schoolie d. Yeah, probably was. And there was <laughs> uh, there was another guy in the industry who was sleazy as all hell. His name was Jerry Heller, mm-hmm. and he used to hang around in my office because I represented Joan Arbitrating, which is one of his acts, and she's the epitome of um, integrity. Mm-hmm. But Jerry wasn't. Mm. Not at all, and so the very thing that repelled me totally—the idea of recommending killing in your music—oh, Jerry loved that. So he went to Compton and he started gathering a whole bunch of these, and Jerry helped put gangster rap across.
2: He most definitely did. Yeah. Yep. Now, um, going back to to the Sugar Hill Gang and uh, Grandmaster Flash, right. you know Sylvia Robinson, her legacy has kind of been hit, you know, over the past few years, or even you know, before that, she's faced some controversy.
3: Um. Well, she faced controversy right from the very beginning. Um, the record labels really despise this music. But the way the music industry works is by, you have all of these executives who are very rigid and are just trying to repeat yesterday's formula. That's the only thing they can see as succeeding. But music eventually jumps straight over, leapfrogs yesterday's formula. That's part of what music is all about. So, when... Some independent comes along who is into that form of music, like Tom Silverman at Tommy Boy Records or Sylvia Robinson at Sugar Hill at the uh, or whatever it was, her record company. But one way or the other, um, when those independents come along, all of a sudden, the majors see money. Mm-hmm. And so they try to acquire the independents. Well, in the case of rap, we we, we definitely got rap across mm-hmm. in the first three years. And Electro Records decided that they wanted to sign Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five away from Sylvia Robinson. And they knew nothing about rap. Mm. Absolutely nothing. Nor did they respect it. Mm -hmm. Nor did they want to learn anything about it. They thought you simply acquire the act and you make the money. No, I'm sorry. You have to nourish the subculture that 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 music is a part of. You have to respect that subculture. You have to love it. Right. And uh, they didn't. And this meant big money for Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. So they took the deal. Now, I was in a very peculiar position because Sylvia became like family to me. Mm-hmm. And so did Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. And the weird thing was that Sylvia felt I was her family, and so did Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. They claimed, they, they tried to mount a lawsuit against Sylvia saying that she had cheated them out of money. Mm. So, and, and they got a lot of press for it. They were getting on all kinds of television and radio shows with this claim. So I told Sylvia, just give me every single check that you've ever given them. And Sylvia tried to explain. I'd be standing in my kitchen, and these guys, I don't know if we're allowed to say this on the radio. But no, yeah, no, 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 no. No, 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 nope, nope, no. no <laughs> nope. Okay. So uh, at any rate, they had some very expensive habits. Right. And so they would show up at her kitchen door at uh, 1 o'clock in the morning and knocking, and she would give them all the cash that she could get to her in the house. So not everything was in receipts. But I got every single check she had ever given them, and I totaled them all off, and I up and I put them in a shopping bag, and I went on TV, mm. and I showed you these checks because Sylvia had been paying them. Now a tiny little label like hers that had to support itself initially with mafia money, because those are the only people willing to support a black record label. Mm-hmm. Joe Jackson, uh, uh, Michael Jackson's father, was stuck with the same situation. Those are the only people who would finance you. You don't make the kind of royalties that you make at a major label. You make a smaller royalty, but then there's a huge commitment, and the huge the commitment was enormous. Sylvia would not have come to my office if she wasn't very committed to Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Right. So what what is the negative that that's circulating about Sylvia? Well,
2: I think that was the controversy. Be, yeah. You know that, and then maybe some of the the taking of of talent and manipulating it and
3: whatever I think those are the I never saw her manipulate talent in any way. If she had, if, if there were any form of manipulation she could make your music better because remember she wrote hit records mm-hmm. and she was capable of seeing a genre like uh, rap and writing in that you know the rap she wrote wasn't uh, derivative it became primary mm-hmm. it became a major source in rap music. And I never saw her manipulating acts to their disadvantage. Never saw that. Sylvia is somebody that we should pay a great deal of respect to because she broke barriers. And her Without, name
1: doesn't come up.
3: No, o- almost it come ever up at in all. the in the hip hop conversation. Right. It's not. It's not the go to name. But she was there first, and Russell was there second.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's fascinating that you got to then. Kind of watch that now. now Who were some? So you were saying you were the go-to rap publicist, or or that's what they were saying at the time. Who were some other acts, if you remember, that maybe you didn't that you worked with? The only
3: one that I remember is Dana Dane, Mm. and he didn't make a big impression on me, um, even though he came from a neighborhood near mine. Um, The the record label that um, that Run DMC's music was on, Priority Records, Mm -hmm. they pretty much brought me everything. And and I worked with it, but nobody had the impact that uh, Run-D.M.C. and Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five had.
2: Hmm. And so was, was it Russell's idea for the, uh, the Aerosmith collaboration?
3: I don't know where that came from, despite the fact that I worked with both Run-D.M.C. and Aerosmith. <laughs> I have no idea. It might have come from Rick Rubin. Yeah, remember, you're,
1: you're absolutely right. Yeah, It
3: was Rick Rubin. Oh, ah, okay. Yeah, because Rick could see the connection. I mean, one of the weird things about rap music was that it came out of a middle-class black background. In other words, until the 1960s or early 1970s, if you were black, you were kept in a ghetto. The very first black project I ever worked on in my life, I was 15 years old. I was made head of the Social Action Committee um, of the Unitarian Youth Group. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm an atheist Jew, but that didn't matter. Um, in Buffalo, New York. And we were working against something called redlining. And redlining meant that if you tried to buy a house, if you were black and you tried to buy a house outside of a black ghetto, no bank would give you the money. So the previous generation, before Runs and before Russells, um, their parents would have had to live in Harlem. Mm -hmm. Well, now all of a sudden, thanks to the civil rights movement, their parents were able to move out of Harlem. And people black couples started moving up to long island and over to queens so russell and run did not grow up in harlem they did not grow up in a ghetto they grew up in a middle class mixed neighborhood mm-hmm. and yet they romanticized the street culture and their music was a music of romanticizing their street culture in order to say these are my roots mm-hmm. and as a consequence the music didn't just appeal to black kids from the ghetto, it appealed to, even more, to white middle class and non and black middle class kids. Mm. It crossed barriers somehow. It spoke for many different disparate subcultures.
2: Nice. So, at this point, we're going to take a break, play a couple songs, and then get back into the conversation. So far, it's been quite enlightening.